0: The subject of my talk this morning is, What's in Your Barn? And it is based on the gospel reading of our text for today, which is found in Luke, in the 12th chapter, beginning from verse 13 to the 21st verse. A story is told of a young man who, in his senior year in high school, somehow, and strangely so, brought himself to believe that his parents would buy him a car upon graduation. The young man lived expectantly towards that end, ordered his life according to this expectation, and when the time came, he got a brand new laptop computer. His disappointment was profound, so much so that it blinded him from rejoicing for the gift given. The givers of the gift give their beloved son a good gift, a gift not meant just for the present moment and the ensuing depreciation, but one intention for coming college years, attaining an education that would be rewarding for the rest of their son's life. What led this senior in high school to conclude that his parents would buy him a car? One must conclude that he presented himself with reasons and arguments that lacked supporting evidence or some, or more simply, were based on false assumptions. Our gospel text this morning brings us to to a similar place. Jesus tells a parable that indicates quite starkly that the rich man that is the protagonist of our story reached a conclusion that was based on a false assumption. But before we get to the parable, let us not forget that the parable was a response to a question shouted from the crowd towards Jesus. The question came from a seemingly desperate soul. Only desperation could cause one to air one's private affairs in such a public way. In this case, the issue at hand was significant, a matter of inheritance between brothers. The question came from an unnamed speaker, but the response was addressed to all. Thus, the reader of the text is not one eavesdropping on the conversation, but one engaged and indeed participant in the dialogue. I am the one asking the question, though not in the same exact words and like the one asking the question in the text, I too long for a favorable response from Jesus. The question indicates that the one asking the question felt slighted somehow by the inheritance rules, two thirds for the first son and a third for the second as found in Deuteronomy 21, Or maybe he had squandered his portion too quickly and needed to regain some ground without working for it. We do not know. Perhaps more simply is what one Bible scholar writes, that since Torah contains laws of inheritance, a religious teacher might be asked to settle disputes about it. Let us go with that. The man that asked the question had his own set of assumptions about Jesus that emboldened him to throw out his plea the way he did. Maybe it was his observation of the way Jesus treated all with deep and genuine compassion. Or was it the gentle, loving, and generous way that Jesus welcomed and attended to all that surrounded him? Surely he had heard, if not witnessed, Jesus feeding the multitudes, rather than sending them home hungry, or Jesus healing the sick or casting out evil spirits, or Jesus touching the unclean and being touched by the unclean, whereby the unclean became clean. Whatever prompted him to speak up, surely he must have thought to himself that these characteristics of Jesus were leaning in his favor. But in our text for today, things do not go so well for the man. The response he got was not favorable. Jesus jolted the man and the crowd by refusing to solve a dispute that had temporal value, if any, and decided to elevate each listener's life ethic to matters of eternal value and relevance. Jesus responded. Who appointed me judge over you? Then Jesus addressed a gathered crowd of people, for he knew they all in one way or another suffered the same self-centeredness, and they were all driven by the same spirit that knows no satisfaction. Watch out, Jesus said. Be on guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in an abundance of things. The focus is on the wrong thing, Jesus says, if it is turned inwards. The man was focused on obtaining more of what he already had. And Jesus was saying, more would not then and will not today bring fulfillment or contentment or peace. Life is more than the accumulation of that which perishes. However, lest the pithiness of what Jesus said to the crowd in a single declarative sentence cause confusion in anyone, Jesus told a story, a parable. Thomas Long, an emeritus professor of preaching at Candler School of Theology in Emory University, says that the word parable is a notoriously difficult word to translate. But the best definition of parable is riddle. A riddle has some puzzle to solve, some enigma to be plumbed. And the thing about Jesus' parables (laughs) is that when you think you've got it, a trapdoor opens and you fall into a deeper level of mystery. So Jesus began. The ground of a sudden rich man yielded an abundant harvest. He said to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he concluded, addressing himself, this is what I will do. I will tear, I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones and there store my surplus grain. The abundance had caused a problem a good problem. And problems demand solutions. And the solution so far in the parable seems to be a pretty good one. The grain does need to be stored somewhere. But in this progression of the story we do not get to the intention of the solution until the man spells it out for us. I will say to myself, you Have plenty of grain, laid up for many years, take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry. Then, with economy of words and precision of action, we hear God's response. You fool, this very night, your life will be demanded of you. It is not until the man states his intention of self-indulgence and God comes calling that we identify the fatality of the man's false assumption. While the grain was his to be sure and subject to his decision on how to use it or spend it, he assumed he had the years, to in time to enjoy the abundance of his grounds. But time, unlike grain, did not belong to him. Time was not subject to his whims. Time is outside of us. It belongs to God. Maybe the Gospel lesson for us today calls us to begin with the man that asked the question and to envision ourselves as his doppelganger or his mirror image. Our text today seems to point out that unforeseen problems seem to arise when one operates by a set of assumptions that are guided by and directed towards a self-centered end. Self-centeredness and false assumptions both obscure the vision of the best possible in oneself and derail the best present in oneself or what Father Gregory Boyd of Homeboy Industries would call calls the unshakable goodness in each of us. Self-centeredness erodes and diminishes the image of God in oneself. To remix a text from another story in the Gospel of John, Jesus seems to be saying to us in this text, Cast your thinking nets. Your speech nets, your action nets, your reflection nets on the right side of life. And you will find there God's abundance. You will not come out empty-handed. What is the right side of life? The side of gratitude towards God. The side of generosity. The side of goodness. The side of lifting the least of these. The direction of our thoughts. Speech, action, and reflection matters. It should be towards God. But maybe the parable is teaching us something that we have overlooked all along and misplaced along the way. The parable begins with a certain rich man. The man is described as being already rich. This harvest was not the path to becoming rich. he was already there. As listeners and readers of the text, we ought to begin at the same exact place. We are rich. When it comes to material possessions, I know that I would not be considered as I would not be considered rich, given the wealth standards of California or this nation. However, given my standard of living, when compared to one who lives in a country where the per capita income is less than $1,200 a year, I am indeed incredibly rich. But if my kinfolk in such countries are reading the same text today as we are in whatever time zones around the globe, Their beginning place is the same as for us. They are, as we are, rich already. This then calls us to re-examine what the parable means by rich or what it means to be rich in the reign of God. Jesus led an itinerant life, yet never considered himself poor. When he sent the disciples out, he commanded them not to take any material goods. Yet, wherever they went, the abundance of God was experienced. People were healed and fed and shown mercy. People who were the refuse of society found a place to belong. Surely, the rich man in our text for today with his abundant harvest, could have envisioned different kind of barns and housed the grain there, in the hungry stomachs of those who went to bed hungry every night. Barns, you see, do not have to only hold and hoard. Barns can be and are actions that are life-giving, life nurturing, and life-sustaining. Generosity consists of giving one's time, talents, and gifts as they are directed towards blessing the lives of others. Whenever we are among God's people, God's abundance awaits to be shared and experienced. God's richness is found in generosity and mercy towards all. God's richness finds expression in generosity and mercy to all. But I think ultimately this parable is a call to recalibrate how we prioritize our lives. A move from what is the focus of our lives to who is the center of our lives. Who orders our priorities? In the TV show Beat Bobby Flay, Bobby Flay the chef, presents the contestants with a particular ingredient and instructs them that the ingredient is supposed to be the star of whatever dish they decide to cook in the given time. This parable is asking us in one way, who is the star of our lives? When I fill my life with myself to overflowing, all I become is a grotesque version of a human being. To quote Father Boyle, I am alienated from my unshakable goodness. Who then can so permeate my life that whenever anyone encounters me, they are touched by and they can taste and see the abundance of God in my life? Jesus in this parable is saying that time is the most precious possession we do not have. And we can neither purchase it nor hoard it. Time is God's prerogative alone, so much so that even God's name, I Am, has a dimension of time which is in the present now. Thus, we are to be careful and wise stewards of the present now, and God's invitation is for us to bask in God's goodness and mercy now. I also think that the parable wants to steer us away from the abundance of possessions because material possessions have a limited shelf life. They lose; they tend to lose their glow and allure. Moreover, accumulating and wanting more is driven by a longing for something missing a soul void, so to speak, or some pain collected over time. That is why we continue to grind our souls to a pulp, working working and striving to get the next thing, get a bigger version of this or that, a spitting in the wind trying to fulfill insatiable appetites. So we blindside family members and colleagues and friends to get ahead propelled by our egos. We betray our highest ideals to belong to groups and classes and clubs whose accepted and much envied currency is exclusivity. The most painful reality is that there is nothing one can strive for or buy to fill this void. Chris Smithers, in one of his songs, captures this brilliantly. He draws a picture of a farmer selling all kinds of produce, who says to the customer whose hunger is not for produce, if hungry is what's eaten you, I'll sell you peace of mind. But if this ain't what you came to hear me say, and I hate to disappoint you, but I got no love today. What the buyer is looking for is not for sale and is not sold anywhere. We at some point or other all attempt to fill the void we carry with the debris of possessions and the pursuit of all manners of escape. There is no possession that can bring us to a place of peace. The void we have is in the shape of God and only God can fill it in a way that restores one to God and to oneself. The God we encounter in the Gospels is a trustworthy God, a God who will not abandon us, a God who makes God's self incapable of letting us go towards destruction, even self destruction. God, as lover, calls us God's beloved, and God's love is intentioned to restore us to our God who is our proper mirror image. Eugene Peterson, in his message, renders the conclusion of this parable so well. Fool, tonight you die, and your bondful goods, who gets it? And then he writes this line. That's what happens when you fill your bond with self and not with God. So in the spirit of a commercial on TV, let us move from what's in your wallet to what's in your barn but ultimately let's move to who's in your barn may we know God's abundance and may we live it each, may we live it each moment of every day as long as we shall have